Hello, welcome to Spilling Chai on the Pain Gap. I'm your host, Anisha Hussain, and when I first started doing my research on my book, The Pain Gap, How Racism and Sexism in Healthcare Kill Women, it wasn't long until I started stumbling upon many other gaps in women's health, such as the credibility gap, which we discussed earlier on this show, but also the knowledge gap. There's a serious lack of research that's being done on women's health. And needless to say, this has serious implication for our health and rights and our lives. There's one doctor in particular who has been raising the alarm on this issue for years. I'm talking about Dr. Alison McGregor, and I'm so honored to have her on the show today. I'm gonna read you her incredible bio. Dr. Alison McGregor is a women's health pioneer who has brought the concept of sex and gender differences in the delivery of acute medical care to the national stage. She's an associate professor of emergency medicine at the Warren Alpert Medical School of Brown University and the co-founder and director for the Division of Sex and Gender in Emergency Medicine at Brown University's Department of Emergency Medicine. Dr. McGregor is also a co-founder for the national organization, Sex and Gender Women's Health Collaborative. Dr. McGregor's research focus is on the effects that sex and gender have on emergent conditions. She has been an advocate for this model nationally, speaking widely to both medical professionals and lay people. Her TEDx talk, Why Medicine Often Has Dangerous Side Effects for Women, currently has over 1.5 million views and has sparked a national conversation around how sex and gender influence medical treatment and outcomes. She is the author of Sex Matters, How Male-Centric Medicine Endangers Women's Health and What We Can Do About It. And she is our guest today on Spilling Chai. I hope you enjoy our conversation. Thank you so much. Speak with you. Um, so first of all, one of the, one of the most shocking things, and there was a lot of shocking things that I found when I started my research for my book was that in addition to the pain gap, there's a knowledge gap. And this is one of the things, um, that people are always shocked about when I tell them about the lack of research in women's health and how it's still ongoing to this day. People are like, really, is it that bad? So, um, this is a loaded question, but just to jump right into it, why do we still treat women's health as an enigma? And where is the research? It's a great question. And thank you so much for having me on here. Um, I am also a fan of your work. Uh, and so when we take a look at why we have this overwhelming gap of knowledge of the health of women, it really dates back to when we started to um, create evidence-based medicine. So when we really understood what evidence-based medicine is and how we were going to research human beings, the, the anatomy, their physiology, their disease, we did that in men only. Um, and so that was really, the timing of that is really important because that was about 1970s. There was a, a rule, a National Research Act that was passed that required um, basically women to be protected subjects. Um, and so, so there was, you know, this wonderful new rules of being, um, you know, making sure that informed consent 
um, and, and human research is all there, all those great protections, but they also threw women into that bucket. And so when we started really understanding cardiovascular disease and stroke and cancer, this was all done based on white men. And so there's this complete lack of understanding that we have these differences in women outside of our reproductive issues. Almost year three into the pandemic, and I'm still learning to unmute myself. I know, I know. You're on mute. I know. I'm like, like I know. Not. I know I'm on mute. I can't unmute myself. Uh, no, what uh, when I hear, I mean, when I stumbled upon facts like uh, the how the NIH didn't even have a mandate to include women in its research until the 1990s, and things really haven't improved that much. And when I was writing my book, one of the most infuriating things that happened, I felt like, because you know, as women, we already know the gendered impact of COVID was so clear, not only on women's health, but really on women's existence. So one of the things I just found that was so infuriating that despite everything, how America kind of expected women to carry the pandemic uh, on our backs, we were still left out in real time out of the COVID, the first round of the COVID vaccine trials, you know, arguably the most anticipated vaccine of our lifetimes. What did that say to you? Because that just made me want to go on a murder rage. Cause I'm like, we are seeing how important women's health is for everybody. And we're still like, must protect the fetus and basically, you know, left women to their own devices. So what did that say to you as, as a medical doctor? That we have a long way to go. Um, I feel very reassured, however, um, I've been in this world for about you know 15 years. And so I think we are at a crossroad of inevitability. It's just the slowness of it is is is, is just it's horrific. Um, and that's because there are so many different cogs in the wheel when you think about medical health. It's the medical research, it's how do we get that research that up-to-date state-of-the-art when we start to look at men and women the difference is how do we then get that into our medical education system so that way our doctors will be educated on this new uh you know shocking understanding that women are different than men which is you know quite um uh you know even when i say that i you know i think the public really thought that we took a lot of this into account and we really didn't um, and i think the nih is a great model for for this change. They have now um, requested that sex as a biological variable be part of the design of studies. Um, but you don't need NIH funding in order to do a study. Um, the FDA does not have real power over pharmaceutical companies to ensure that women are enrolled. So there really still needs to be some regulations that have uh, have effect that have oomph. Um, and I think that that is related to how do we value women? And if we don't value women, um, then uh, in, in the health crisis, we will see how vulnerable women really are. Yeah, I always come down to that exact point that at the end of the day, it's really not about a lack of funding or research, but do we value women? Do we value women's lives? Like I love, I don't love, but that example that you use of Ambien is yeah. so powerful because I mean, did we not even think that this could lead to car accidents, kill women unnecessarily? Do we value women's lives? I mean, that's so dangerous to not, to not think about um, how women were metabolizing the drug slower, right? 
Yes, exactly. So after the drug has, you know, was originally tested on men and then prescribed to mostly women because women have um, higher uh, sleep disorders than men. Um, after 20 years of being prescribed and um, women have had to rely on post-market surveillance because they weren't part of the original studies mm -hmm. when the dosing was, was decided and safety and the efficacy. So then it gets prescribed to women. And then finally, after 20 years, there was enough post-market surveillance reports that women were waking up still drowsy and having impaired driving. And I really find that to be a um, uh, an important statistic example because as an emergency physician and I've seen, you know, I know what happens with motor vehicle crashes and it's um, life-threatening. And so here's something that we didn't discover until after it was, it was out. But then what it also does is that um, that's one medication. That's one drug mm -hmm. um, when there are, you know, billions of them out there and being utilized and more likely to be prescribed for women. Women are more likely to have multiple specialists and providers because every no one really can figure yeah. out what's going on. And so they're just gonna give them prescriptions over and over again to try and to see if it helps um, when, um, you know, the original studies never had, uh, you know, enough women in it to be able to tell. Um, if there should be a dose change. So um, so again, there's a lot of work I think that still needs to be done, but it's a, it's a very important example. Yeah. Um, you are the co-founder of the Sex and Gender Health Collaborative, a national organization which works to integrate sex and gender knowledge into medical education and clinical practice. How is that going? Oh, it's terrific. And really, um, I'm not at the top leader um, of it at, at this at anymore. Um, the American Medical Women's Association um, really sort of supported it and it's now under their umbrella. But it was such a critical point in, in and I think in, in, in this entire um, story uh, for in the United States, because when I was really discovering that sex differences were important and ignored, um, I um, went to my emergency medicine specialty conference and I started to really talk to people about it and no one really understood what I was meaning. It was really just sort of before the time. And so when I went to an AMWA conference, um, that's when we collectively uh, looked for um, like-minded women um, and created our own group, which is the Sex and Gender Health Collaborative, which was made up of women of all different specialties. So family medicine, cardiology, obstetrics, um, urology, emergency medicine. And we were able to come together to say, okay, let's let's be the, the source of this information. Let's start looking at this, let's do research, and then we could bring it out amongst our own specialty. So I think it was a critically, um, just coming together and, um, and giving this a voice was, was really um, uh, a catalyst, I think, for all of us to, to have our careers based on it. Oh, that's awesome. You guys were being the change. You guys yes, were being proactive. I that's awesome. I'm going to pull up this quote of yours that I love so much because obviously, I mean, it's, it's a lot of work that we're talking about. And you have this awesome quote in the guardian, um, basically somebody asking about the scale of change required seems enormous. And you say, quote, yes, she nods happily mammoth. I absolutely agree. And I make no apology for that. Each hypothesis is based on the one before and the one before 
And if this has all been male, we unfortunately need to start from scratch. But I think it's a moral obligation we have for half of the population. Bravo! I oh, love yes. that quote so yeah. much. So yes, Thank you're you. so right. I love that you're like, yes, it's a lot of work and we need to do it. What the heck? Of course, I uh, just because something is hard or challenging or a lot of work doesn't mean it's not good. This is scientifically the, the, the evolution of understanding science. Um, one of the things I, I find so incredible about this is that when we do find a difference, now science is actually trying to look at what is the cause of that difference. Is it the sex chromosomes? Is it our DNA that's different? Is it because of estrogen and testosterone differences? Is it because of our gendered environment? And so this is just good science. And, um, and we have the ability to be complicated now. Mm -hmm. um, you know, we have the ability to, 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 you know, we were always looking to make sure all of the variables were left out so we could find out what was really going on. And that doesn't work for, for, for now, for you know, 2022 and for the complexity of women's health. Um, we have to be compl complex. We have to include pregnant women, as you mentioned, um, in our studies. Um, I found it to be horrific with COVID. Just, just again showing that um, if you know, if you were, you had to um, take a pregnancy test, and if you were positive, you couldn't be in the vaccine studies. And if you became pregnant between the first dose and the second, you got kicked out. And we need to stop doing that. Um, you know, I think that we have the ability now to study pregnant animal models, to have computerized models, and, and to really have enough informed consent that pregnant women can get the, the care that they need. Because honestly, it's often left up to them to decide their medical care during their pregnancy, which I think is, um, needs to change. Yeah, I mean, it's so it's so dangerous. And also, I was reading that um, the only uh, vaccine that showed to even harm the fetus were like early polio vaccines. And apparently, the COVID vaccine didn't even have a live virus. So it was like we were pretty confident it wasn't going to be a problem. We still excluded women anyway, and basically tested on them on what in like an uncontrolled group. So and the stress, yes. I'm sure you know, I mean, I'm sure you've seen the stress that it caused women. I mean, I'm not surprised that, you know, depression and anxiety are skyrocketing. We basically, you know, and we knew that it, uh, the virus was more uh, aggressive and dangerous in pregnancy and for pregnant women, but we were still like, I mean, just a complete um, disregard. Uh, despite all the doom and gloom, <laughs> I am actually very uh, positive. I, I am about women's health. And I feel like uh, it's funny to say that out loud, but I am. Um, I, and I feel like the pandemic is really giving us like a big opportunity because it's showing us so many things that we have gotten wrong. And now we have this opportunity to uh, make it right. So do you do you agree with that? Do you think the pandemic has helped people see the significance of investing in women's health? I certainly hope so. Um, what I think the COVID did very originally was highlight that sex differences research is not just about women's health, that it is about good science because what we discovered were that men were more likely to get sicker. They were more likely to require hospitalization, more likely to require ICU care and higher mortality rates. So I thought, wow, this is really, now that it means something to men, maybe there'll be this like, you know, grand understanding of how important this is. 
Um, but then when you look at the other side of the statistics, you know, with the maternal health and the increase in inter, you know, partner violence that women have, have suffered and, and how the society just expected women to take on all the unpaid labor of this. And um, there's a quote from your book, um, when you mentioned in, in the Atlantic about um, COVID pandemic is, uh, you know, the end of feminism, or it was something related to that. And I thought, God, that is so right, because all the work that women have done to have, you know, um, careers and access to education, um, you know, all of a sudden, all that got stripped away because of these cultural, um, you know, um, uh, um, traditions of you know who, of, of this unpaid labor care. So, um, so I think that um, it has really shown a light on a lot of these healthcare disparities and the need to, to actually look at this in real time. Um, I just was really um, it was unfortunate when I looked at the literature as it was coming out to see that we really didn't do it in real time. Um, we, we still included mostly men. There were no, um, you know, very, very rare, and I've, I've looked at um, lots of studies um, where they even did sex-specific analysis. You know, it was this wonderful opportunity to do it in real time, and it didn't happen. So um, that part's disappointing. But like you, I am also very positive. I do feel as though you cannot unknow this. Yes. Um, you know, so once you show someone, demonstrate that Ambien, that women metabolize the drug two times slower um, than men, you can't just pretend like you never heard that. And so it forces you to consider what about all the other medications? What about our entire understanding? So I think the more we advocate for this, the more we do things like have your podcast and have our books out there, then I think that it's... Um, Again, it's it would be it's inevitable. It's just slow. Yeah, inevitable. It's just slow. I I love that. Um, I I love that you brought that up about the 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 really sharp gender lines that everyone uh, that end up uh, everyone kind of fell fell down against in the early days of COVID. And and yeah, I write about it in my book, and I still feel like that. Like, how did I remember that moment so clearly? You know, like I don't still feel like that, obviously. <laughs> But at that moment when I was just like, how did I become a, a trapped housewife in America? Like, how did this happen to me? <laughs> I know, I know, I know. It's, People would not it's, expect it, but America right. has really kind of very uh, sturdy, rigid gender roles as we as we learned during COVID. And yeah, it was like trapped right back in the right back in the kitchen, barefoot in the right. kitchen. I was exactly, oh, exactly. And then adding on the added teacher roles. Uh, the other thing I wanted to quickly ask you, and this is going to be my last question, but your book was so, I mean. Um, really kind of ahead of its time. And as as a published, as, as just from my, the author side of me as a published author, I wanted to ask you like, what was it like shopping that proposal, having this idea? Because I mean, that was really, you were really ahead of your time. I can imagine. I mean, I, I was reading this interview of yours where you were like, it's changed so much how people speak to me, but you know, back in the day, no one yes. really under, understood what you were doing. What was that like? Um, it's and, and and ahead of the t ahead of ahead of my time is something that I've always thought because I remember I was always an advocate for this. So I was I remember making an appointment to speak with um, uh, one of the high level um, administrators at a woman's hospital and uh, to ask her if she would join my board. And she just said 
you're too ahead of your time. And I thought, well, isn't that the time to join? I mean, isn't that the time to, you know, to really sort of bring it out there? But um, the uh, my book, Sex Matters, came came up after the success of my TED Talk. So, so with the success of my TED Talk, um, actually agents had reached out to me and um, said, this would make a great book idea. And I thought, wow, of course, that, that would be great. And I did publish a medical textbook on um, sex and gender and, and acute care medicine. But I thought, you know, as I'm trying to do the research and teach the future physicians, um, you know, I would still show up at my emergency department and nothing's really changed. So I thought, okay, I want, if I write a book about this, I want this to be for my mother, for my sister, for the women who uh, need to go see their doctor this afternoon. And, um, you know, how can I support them in advocating for themselves? And so um, I used uh, patient um, case scenarios uh, that were all ones I experienced uh, as a way to describe the problem and then to empower women to advocate for their own uh, health and well-being. Wow. Well, it was a real, I feel like your book is like a real contribution to the American feminist movement and really the global fight for women's health and rights. So I thank you so much for your time. And I am, I'm so honored. Like moments like this is, I mean, it's so, it's so cool for me. <laughs> to get cool to for Zoom me with too. You. <laughs> I get to talk to someone who about this, this topic, um, you know, and, uh, and you're also, you know, a, a great advocate for this. So, um, so it was wonderful to meet you and, uh, and, you know, I would hope that our paths can, can cross and synergize. Definitely, definitely it would be an honor. It would be an honor to work with you and collaborate with you anyway, please. I am at your disposal. Um, thank you so much, Dr. McGregor. I will be in touch soon and thank you so much. Have a good day. Thank one. you. Thanks for spilling the tea with us. Of course. <laughs> Have a great day.